I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hey, Monica. Hey, Jennifer. Okay, tell our listeners what we're talking about today. So today we're talking about biodiversity and the threat of that biodiversity loss. The world is losing its biodiversity at a rapid rate with ecosystem loss as the driving force. It's a vitally important issue that is just as much as an existential threat as climate change. And really, it's really being caused by it. Our episode today is focused on large scale global solutions to safeguard the world's plants and animals. This is such an important issue, so we're thrilled to be speaking with Brian O'Donnell, the director of the Campaign for Nature, a partnership between the WIS Campaign for Nature and the National Geographic Society. Campaign for Nature works with the government and nonprofit partners all over the world to advocate for science-driven solutions to prevent continued biodiversity loss, particularly the goals to conserve at least 30% of the planet by 2030. Yes, and some of you may have heard of it as the 30 by 30 project. And this December, world leaders are meeting in Montreal for a convention on biological diversity, also known as COP15, to discuss and hopefully agree on this target. So we'll definitely be keeping track of that. You know, we love chatting with Brian about the importance of biodiversity, why 30% by 2030 is a significant benchmark, and of course, why reconnecting to nature is a key aspect of protecting the planet and its species. So let's get to the interview with Brian O'Donnell from the Campaign for Nature. Hey, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us on Biophilic Solutions today. want to kick off the conversation and tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in all of these incredible environmental and conservation issues. Well, it's great to be speaking with you today. I've always been interested in environmental issues ever since being a kid. Loved exploring the woods behind my house in Massachusetts. Also got to live overseas when I was when I was a child. My parents taught at the American school in Egypt. So we spent quite a bit wow. of time out in the desert, camping out in the desert and the kind of the big open spaces have always intrigued me and I think uh, instilled in me just a desire to be outside as much as possible. I'm sure that would definitely do it. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. So the Campaign for Nature is a partnership with a couple other groups. Will you tell me about how that came to be and a little bit deeper about the goals for the 2030? Campaign for Nature started about four years ago when a number of people were, including some scientists at the National Geographic Society, some staff at the Weiss Foundation, which is a philanthropic foundation, and a few of us who weren't yet affiliated, including myself, were all independently thinking about the crisis facing nature, the loss of habitat, the loss of species that were faced, and the pace at which conservation was happening, not keeping up with the pace of loss. And so 
collectively, we came together to think about what could we do about this? How could we encourage a much greater investment in the conservation of nature, both in terms of policy and in terms of financial resources to help secure conservation? So the Weiss Foundation and the National Geographic Society launched this effort called the Campaign for Nature. And the effort was to try to do three main things. One is to increase the percentage of the world's lands and oceans that are conserved to at least 30% of the world's lands and oceans. Second is to increase finance so that when we do see these areas that are conserved, they actually have the financial support to maintain the function that they need and to manage these areas so that they are effective. And the third is to do so in a way that advances the rights of indigenous peoples and local communities whose whose rights haven't always been respected in conservation. So those were the main sort of organizing principles for Campaign for Nature. And fortunately, the Weiss Foundation decided to support this with a generous gift to help get this off the ground and build some campaign staff and support. So we've been busy at trying to implement those three goals for the last four years. Amazing. What is 30 by 30 exactly and why mm-hmm. Why by 2030? So why 30? And can you kind of dive into that a bit, little bit more? Sure. Well, maybe I'll start a little bit in the reverse of your question. So the why 2030? The reason we chose 2030 was that the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is a global agreement, it was born back in 1992 at the same time as the Climate Convention. They go through a strategic planning process that every 10 years, they set global targets that countries around the world come together to agree to. And they were set in 2020 to agree to what they call the post-2020 global biodiversity framework. That's a lot to just basically describe a 10-year strategy for how the world safeguards nature. And as part of that 2020 framework, they would set targets for how much of the world's lands and oceans should be conserved. The current target that they've had in place is 17% of the world's lands and 10% of the world's oceans. Scientists have looked at that number and said that that's not nearly large enough to prevent extinctions, to maintain enough of the function of nature. So we decided that it would make sense to build a campaign aimed at that new strategic plan to try to increase the ambition to up that to at least 30% of the world's lands and oceans by 2030. That would mean a major sort of shot of adrenaline into the global conservation community for upping its ambition and having it be time bound so that things happen in the near term because the pace of destruction of nature is happening so quickly. 30% is not necessarily a magic number. It's not if we hit 30% that that's the absolute will save all of biodiversity. But scientists point to that as about a minimum. If we maintain that amount, we'll prevent the most extinctions will be able to maintain the function of most ecosystems if these areas are put in the right places and they're done in concert with some other environmental protections. Think of places like the rock and ice at the top of mountains or just all desert lands that are big expanses of habitat, but not the most important habitat for concentrations of biodiversity. So most of the world's biodiversity is in the tropics, and a lot of the ocean biodiversity is actually closer to shore versus the high seas. So making sure we get the right 30% is also really important. Well, that's a really good point, though, that we don't, you think, well, well, all the oceans are sort of saved. 
ha ha. So wouldn't that count? But I think you're right. That proximity of where the high diversity and all the animal life is should be definitely considered. Another thing that I think I've read is that connectivity, right? That helps nature move. Can you talk a little bit about that? That I guess land connectivity or I've heard about land bridges. Yes, that's critically important. So if you think about protected and conserved areas can almost act like islands in a way. And if they aren't connected where species have the ability to move between them, you start to lose that genetic diversity and you can lose, especially this is especially important for wide ranging predators and jaguars, wolves, animals that require that big territory. Connectivity is also going to be really important as the climate changes because the habitat that may be ideal for certain species species now won't be ideal as the planet warms and the climate changes. So some species will need to move up in in elevation to survive. So we're starting to see that these areas can't be a series of isolated islands, but rather to the extent possible, having land that connects these core habitat areas between each other. So trying to design, really thinking about protection as systems of protected areas and conserved areas with connectivity between them so that species can, in fact, move between different areas. That's why things like the the border wall here in the U.S.-Mexico border is such a problem because we know that we're the northernmost range of jaguars or ocelots or jaguarundis, which have come up from Mexico in the United States. But then these populations become isolated and can no longer breed and then will become extinct within the United States. So connectivity is really important. Wow. Yeah, the unintended consequences always is something that it's kind of wild. Right. So saving 30% of the land is like the minimum, like that's the bottom threshold, we should say. And then by 2030, you sort of touched on urgency, but it, it was just a fun thing to say 30 by 30. Or I know there's a lot of people doing a lot of net zero, a lot of work around 2030. Why was that date chosen? We realize that, and I've worked in conservation for several decades, and it's usually it's done in a sort of a consensus way and a bottom-up way, which is good. But when you just, there was a graph I saw from scientists that just showed how quickly we're losing habitat versus how quickly we're designating areas. And the paces are, that we just have such a difference in pace where the destruction is happening so quickly and the conservation is not keeping up pace. So having this kind of time-bound area really helps governments and others to focus on not just someday we'll get there, but we're going to be measured by can we get there in this decade? What does that mean? It's a way to keep pace to make sure we're we're reaching that effort and that time-bound approach. We also recognize that most of the world's infrastructure, it's hard to believe, but we're actually going to, on pace globally, to build more infrastructure, more highways, pipelines, and other developments in the next decade than all of the wow. existing infrastructure. So huge amounts of habitat loss are planned in the world. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, it's... So repeat that again, because I think that's super important that there, for people to hear. just a huge development of infrastructures planned in the next decade. Roads, pipelines, dams, other efforts like this are all planned. And so when we think about all the infrastructure that we have now, we're talking about doubling that in the world. And that is a massive amount that's planned, especially in certain countries. China has a big effort called the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a big development effort in Africa, in Southern Asia and Central Asia, where there's huge amounts of infrastructure that's going to go in there. And so there's really a limited amount of time to safeguard habitat before much of it gets fragmented beyond Gosh. beyond repair. 
So in the 2020 or the draft of the Global Biodiversity Framework, has that been updated since 2020 or has that been codified with the UN? Or tell us how governments are, I guess, agreeing upon it. And then, I'm oh, sorry, that's my dog. <laughs> and then how are they going to implement it? The Convention on Biological Diversity convenes countries, and virtually every country in the world is a party, a member, basically, of the Convention on Biological Diversity, except the United States. So all of these countries get together and help draft this post-2020 framework. It was supposed to be done in 2020, but like everything (laughs) else with COVID, it got delayed several years. It was scheduled to be in China where this meeting would take place and countries would agree. And they had several negotiating sessions that lead up to that. So we have a draft of the framework that does include the 30 by 30 target. And that frame, but that has to be finally agreed at what they call the convention at the conference of parties, which takes place in December in Montreal, Canada. So it's about a three-week process in Montreal where negotiators from each of these countries will agree on targets to safeguard biodiversity. The 30 by 30 target is only one of about 21 targets that they're discussing. Other targets include targets around pollution and subsidy reform for subsidies for agriculture and fossil fuels. So all of this will be debated in a series of negotiations And we're glad that the 30 by 30 target is in the draft. That's a good sign. We've also seen 104 countries now endorse it and form a coalition, which they call the the High Ambition Coalition for Nature and People. So that's a good sign. It has quite a bit of global support, but it's a consensus-driven process. So any, any one country can put a spanner in the works and really delay the agreement. And there are a few countries that have not yet gotten on board with this proposal and they can still block a global agreement here. And you mentioned that the U.S. had not been involved in the first one. Are we involved now? I mean, are we one of the problem countries? No, we're actually, I mean, the U.S. should be a party to the Convention of Biological Diversity, but never signed the treaty. President Clinton wanted to approve it, but the U.S. Senate at the time decided not to agree to it. It's not so much as problems about the Convention on Biological Diversity, but virtually every treaty has been stalled in the U.S. Senate. Our system of approving treaties is basically gummed up. So that said, the U.S. is not a formal party, but we still have endorsed the 30 by 30 target as a country. So President Biden endorse that. And the U.S. is actually working to at least 30 percent of our lands and oceans by 2030. So the U.S. has been a positive force on that, even though we're not a formal member of the Convention on Biological Diversity. The economists say that to reverse the decline in biodiversity by 2030, the world needs to be spending as much as $967 billion versus the $800 billion a year that we are spending now. What would that money go towards exactly? Do you know? It is a huge gap in the financing for biodiversity that we need to spend. The money is required for all sorts of different things. It can be planning. So just the environmental departments of different countries needing to do spatial planning for which areas they'll conserve, management of areas that can include people patrolling against illegal uses of areas, illegal mining, that sort of thing, restoration of areas that have been degraded. So reforesting or restoring wetlands that have been degraded costs quite a bit of money. All of these Things require personnel, technology, scientific studies. So that's all part of the efforts. We're up against some of the largest multinational corporations that have billions and billions of dollars that they're investing in oil and gas projects. 
This December meeting in Montreal, is that the next, if you will, most public opportunity for input over those three weeks? Although there's 21 topics, this is one of them. Is the U.S. attending? You know, are they sending somebody? What does that meeting look like? Maybe you've seen on TV or, or others with the, the sort of UN deliberations where you've got picture a big dais with a number of dignitaries in the front and then series of tables all with each country with its placard and a microphone. And imagine trying to have a sort of group editing with 150 people. Maybe you've done that in an office or in, in a college class, but this on the global scale becomes it's very cumbersome. So it's a very formal process and deliberate. So it takes a long time to get through this. Each country sends a delegation of negotiators and these negotiators will then look at the draft and propose text changes and they keep working until they can get basically uh, agreement and full full agreement on each line, each word in the text. They'll move into basically committees to review specific sections of the text. The U.S. will send a delegation as an observer. And even though the U.S. isn't an official party, the U.S. participants can suggest changes, as can nonprofit organizations or scientific entities can as well. But countries that are official parties to the convention get priority, and they are the ones who get final say over the text at the end. But this December meeting is absolutely a a crux moment. Many have likened it to the Paris moment that we saw for climate, but for biodiversity. So this is the chance for a global agreement on nature, the likes of which the world has never quite seen. Probably the most synonymous effort was in 92 when there was this Rio Earth Summit where the world came together and actually created the Climate Convention and the Biodiversity Convention. But this is the most important moment for global nature deliberations and agreement that we've seen in decades. Climate change has gotten so much attention, as it should. It's an existential crisis for the planet. But in some ways, it has sort of drowned out every other environmental issue. And often the media or the public thinks that when we talk about the environment, climate change is the only issue that matters. But biodiversity is just as important and as big an existential threat to life on the planet, the loss of biodiversity. So it needs to rise up the political ladder in terms of importance and get much more attention. When there's a climate discussion, a global agreement, we see heads of state go. President Obama went to Paris to help seal the deal on the Paris Agreement for Climate. But in Montreal, it's still a question of how many heads of state will attend. How big a priority will this be? Will this be a big enough global priority for heads of state that we can reach an agreement with the ambition that we need? We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? (laughs) The Biophilic Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes. And I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So 
You can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in Sarah B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. In thinking about biodiversity, I think I think you make a really great point about climate change, biodiversity. We hear about all these challenges that are happening, but really trying to educate people or and it's not even education, maybe it's just resetting the way we think that biodiversity is sort of like a giant web of life, right? That it's the air, it's the water, it's the food, it's the soil that the food comes from. I mean, it's the animals, it's the people like all of us weave all these actions together and can be unraveled together. I mean, which is why we think of it as sort of a biophilic solution is 30 by 30 is a biophilic solution. Do you feel like when you talk to people, their perception and understanding is changing around sort of how we exist and that it's interconnected? Are people starting to, quote, get that? I'd say there's some positive and negative news on that. I think that in general, I think all of us have witnessed how quickly things are changing around us, that places that used to be natural open spaces are being developed, paved over. And we're, we're just sensing that degree of loss where um, many people are witnessing it in the fewer insects they see in the summer or birds in, uh, that they've witnessed. So the people are getting a sense that there is this loss and that we need to do something about it. That's, I think, the positive side. The negative side is that our lives have become sort of so electronic in many ways, and people are increasingly disconnected from the natural world that we don't see studies showing the, the amount of time that kids spend outside. The amount of nature in our lives has diminished in a way where I think that that personal connection that time outside really builds that passion for nature and the and makes it more central to our everydays. As we become in front of our computer screens all the time, it becomes a little more distant in our in our minds and we we take it for granted. But our whole economies, our whole food systems, our whole livelihoods are dependent on a functioning natural world. So while that disconnect is an illusion in some ways, we have to recognize that we're part of nature. The whole world functions only when nature functions. And so we've got to bring that back around to it's a much more central part of our lives. I'm so glad you said that, Brian, because yeah, I feel that so deeply because I know I've heard you speak before a lot about our connection to nature and that if we don't have that connection, then we have a loss of understanding. And for me, and I think we can all say this, like I want to stand up and say, I'm mad and I'm sad that kids and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and so on will never be able to experience the topography and the landscapes that I grew up with. It's changing before our eyes. And I think of the West Coast and all the fires, and it's just continuing to change the world around us. So I feel like standing up on the top of the mountain and screaming, this is the loss of biodiversity and the loss of our land is something that's breathtakingly heartbreaking because the sadness that people can't experience it, what we got to experience. I'm a 51-year-old person and I 
remember growing up in the state of New York and being able to see so much beauty. But I know a lot of that's disappearing and a lot of that is biodiversity. So I'm glad you kind of touched on that because I think that, that's such a big part of it. I think you're exactly right. I am also 51 years old. And what's interesting is a lot of the studies that chronicle the loss of species population and abundance, they always use 1970 as the year where they, the year I was born, where they show how much has been lost. And something like 65% of populations of mammals has, has declined in wow. that period, which is a massive, massive amount of loss in our lifetimes. And obviously we can't continue on that trajectory. We need to have a rebound. It's just, I just think about when I read about the abundance of various species the year I was born versus now. And, and I think about my daughter's lifespan and what's going to happen in that period. I can't imagine the amount of loss. And we do need to, that's why this 30 by 30 is such an important effort. Can we turn this around? Can we start to put an end to this decline and start to see a rebound in populations? That's the hope of Campaign for Nature and what we're, we're trying to build on. I love that you say that, that the whole world functions when nature functions, because once we lose these animals and plants, and to your point, I was also born in 70, so say it, it, it is, seems like, well, what have we been doing since then? Once things are extinct or the ecosystem has changed, I mean, so much of that eradication is permanent. And I just don't know until it's happening in front of our eyes, sadly, and it's starting to people maybe aren't waking up. You know, one of the things that Jennifer and I talk about and we're very involved with here at Serenby is food um, mm -hmm. from growing it to feeding people in restaurants. But soil health, we, one of our partners is Rodale Institute, and that has been a huge learning for me. I just thought food is food and, you know, you have kids and then maybe you start thinking more about organic and, you know, what's processed and what, you know, what's going into it. And then suddenly I meet Rodale and they are so phenomenal at educating. And for me, it's like soil health equals plant health, which equals animal health, which really helped me to realize every carrot is not equal, right? And it's probably slightly confusing for the consumer because they're like, wait a minute, <laughs> I thought I should just eat fresh foods. Now you're telling me maybe even organic's not even as good. Like I need to find, everybody's talking regenerative now. And really it's about the soil health. And so I think that also fits in to what you guys have been talking about in the UN. And I'll pull a quote or statistic that 90% of the food that we eat is produced in the soil. It's an ecosystem we really nobody really talks about. 40% of the world's lands are considered severely degraded by unsustainable agricultural practices, tillage and chemical inputs, that the soil is just getting denuded, that it doesn't have the ability to have the vitamin uptake, as well as there's a lot of water issues when your soil isn't good. Um, it can't hold the water and that causes flooding and problems like we're seeing across the country. And these are all according to the UN. So wondering, does that help? Maybe I'm not seeing a cheetah or a tiger or worrying about land bridges in my backyard, but every day I have the opportunity to vote with what I'm eating and thinking about where the soils or the foods coming from out of the soil. Um, I'll stop <laughs> my rant. But I do think that that's a, maybe that's one way to get people more engaged. I'd love your thoughts on that. That was incredibly well put. I think that when we think about biodiversity, and I have a bias on this too, we often just think about 
animals and mammals and we forget that biodiversity is all life on earth and we don't think enough about soil biodiversity we don't think about insects and pollinators but our food is a great way to think about how we interact with biodiversity every day in the choices that we make in what we eat the biggest driver of biodiversity loss is through agriculture and really unsustainable ways of doing agriculture so that is a great way to think about it can we can we make better choices in the foods we eat and as you said, vote for which foods we're eating, but also vote for which elected officials we're supporting as well. Because I know some of these efforts, we can make a big difference through our individual behavior, but some are going to make big systems changes in the way our economies price in efforts, how we reduce these massive subsidies that create food systems that are sort of unsustainable for the planet or fuel systems that are unsustainable for the planet. So we need to both vote with our personal choices, but also vote in the countries where we have a say, use that say to make sure that biodiversity and environmental issues are prioritized because we need to make some of these big system changes that can make biodiversity viable in the decades ahead. Speaking of sort of like head to states, leaders, politics and voting, I agree a lot that we can make individual choices and we can help educate our peers. But to your point, it really does start with the governments and heads of states. And so obviously voting where you care is hugely important this year. But also I'm wondering, is there for those who maybe are more on this side of the corporations or wanting to keep the subsidies for whatever reason, is there an economic story that we can tell people that might help? You know, like, listen, there are all these risks that are associated economically, which may speak to their... Maybe they don't care about the biodiversity, but they care about the economy. Is there a storytelling there for them? There is, and it's an emerging one that corporations are starting to recognize. The, the World Economic Forum has recently, in the last few global risk reports, listed biodiversity among some of the planet's highest risks. So they are recognizing that companies need to take biodiversity loss seriously. There's a number of reasons why. Our economies are based on the premise that nature is functioning well. A functioning economy isn't going to work unless there's a functioning natural system underpinning it. So, for instance, in the agriculture sector, we rely on wild pollinators for the vast majority of agriculture. So the agriculture sector needs to worry about biodiversity. We also recognize that Biodiversity also helps us to, by maintaining these natural areas, they also help prevent storm impacts. So picture coral reefs that are healthy or mangrove systems. Those brunt the massive implications of floods and typhoons and hurricanes that can be devastating for economies. And so it's in the interest of those efforts. Insurance companies certainly need to care about the situation and loss of biodiversity because it leads to flooding, it leads to fires, other areas where we're starting to see massive economic loss. I think we've seen companies start to get it on climate change, and they're just starting to recognize that there's a huge economic cost if biodiversity isn't taken seriously. And we're starting to see some businesses say some good things about this. Companies like Unilever have made pledges and others. But ultimately, I think we're going to require some government regulations where the costs of biodiversity loss are put into the economic model. Right now, it's too easy to destroy biodiversity without paying a penalty. And so we need to, to have our economic system think about biodiversity a little bit more in the regulatory approach. I have a question, and maybe this is something far-fetched or 
I don't know, easy to answer, but Monica and I always talk about the solutions. And we always think about it because we're always talking big, the big scale. What can someone in XYZ neighborhood, how do they, I don't know, be a part of the change for good? How can they be a part of the conversation in their local community about biodiversity? Is there somewhere that people can go to learn more or be more active in their own local communities? Sure. The first thing I would do is recommend that if you want to learn more about what's driving biodiversity loss and how you can be active, the largest ever scientific study about biodiversity and a global assessment came out in 2019. And it was done by an organization whose acronym is IPBES, I-P-B-E-S, the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. So it's a mouthful, but if you if you just Google IPBES, Global Assessment, you'll get a sense and they have a summary about the state of the world's biodiversity. And in it, they list the biggest drivers of biodiversity loss, what's causing it, and what can be done with each of those drivers. Much of that is on the global scale, but there's local things that we can do. Habitat loss is the number one driver of biodiversity loss. So even if you have a small yard, making sure that you are looking at what are the plants that you have? Are they native plants that you're growing there? Are you avoiding pesticides that are going to hurt pollinators? You can do something locally. If you live in an apartment and you don't have any land, talking to your community leaders to look at the lands that are managed in your town or your county to make sure that those are managed for biodiversity, that we're reducing pesticides, that we're safeguarding habitat and reducing subsidies for things that destroy biodiversity. Voting and electing officials that care about it is really important. And as you mentioned earlier, the choices you make for food are critically important, especially when we look at the amount of, you know, I eat meat, I'm not a vegan, but I have reduced, especially the amount of beef that I'm eating because of the deforestation and recognizing how much our consumption of meat is really driving quite a bit of deforestation around the world in general. So I think people looking at their diets and even if it's reducing makes a big difference in biodiversity loss. Those are really, really good, helpful thoughts. So as we sort of wrap up, is there something that we haven't touched on or you want to share? How can we get involved with 30 by 30? I love it from a marketing perspective. It's like such a great, easy way to start thinking about it. What can we do or what have we not covered? One area that I think we haven't covered enough is when you look in the world's remaining intact natural areas, so if we're going to get to 30 by 30, protecting 30, especially on the land side of the equation, one of the most important things we can do is to recognize the rights of indigenous people over their territories. We're seeing much of the world's biodiversity, as I mentioned, is concentrated in the tropics, and much of those intact areas are on territories that are ancestral lands or claimed or homelands for indigenous peoples. But many of those lands aren't respected by governments, and we are seeing sort of a land rush for oil and gas, mining, logging, industrial agriculture, taking away at those territories. And so we're also losing cultural identity as, as the same time we're losing territories. So to the extent that the world can support indigenous peoples to maintain their territories, to help make sure that they are recognized and legally secure, that will go a long way to safeguarding biodiversity and as a key component. Too often, indigenous peoples haven't been, their rights haven't been respected, and certainly the resources for conservation haven't flown to and gotten to the frontline defenders of nature. So that's going to be something that needs to change for 30 by 30 to be successful. And I love that, the frontline defenders of nature. 
That's a great way. It is. it is. Brian, thank you so much for your wisdom today and your time. We so appreciate it. And we love the work that you're doing. So how can we support you? Is there anywhere that can we follow you online? Or is there a website we should go to? Or how do we support you in that way? Sure. I think campaignfornature.org has a wealth of information that we try to keep current as the state of the negotiations. A lot of the scientific studies around biodiversity are there and news that's happening in biodiversity. So definitely go to Campaign for Nature. There's a petition on there that you can sign on to that'll go to UN leaders for COP15. So appreciate you signing on to that and stay informed on this. Talk to your local elected and officials that will make a big difference as we go forward. So thanks for covering this issue. Really grateful that you're spreading the word on biodiversity. It's critically important. Gosh, our pleasure. And we'll throw all of that information in the show notes for everybody. And thank you for your time. This has been delightful. I know you're out camping right now. So you took (laughs) took a moment away from nature to talk to us. We appreciate that. After being in New York City for the UN General Assembly Week last week, I needed to get back out in the mountains and refresh a little bit. And that's the other thing I think everyone needs to do. Spend a little more time out there. Remember what we're all fighting for. Okay, so Monica, before we get into any big takeaways from this fascinating conversation with Brian, I was wondering if you picked up on the pattern that so many of our guests had these formative nature experiences at young ages that then lead them to a career working on environmental issues in some capacity. Yeah, it really, really is interesting to me because we always ask that question at the top, you know, tell us about yourself and what led you to your current path. And we almost always get an answer back about how spending time outside, freedom to roam or camping with their families really shaped their appreciation to the natural world. And of course, Brian spent his formative years in Egypt, which is incredible. Yeah, really fascinating, especially thinking about nowadays. He's working on such global, wide-reaching issues and solutions. So what were some of the takeaways you had from the conversation? The first thing that comes to mind is the idea that we need to conserve 30% of the planet for biodiversity, but we also need to ensure that we're conserving the right 30% and that we're doing so strategically with habitat connectivity in mind. That whole thing about habitat connectivity is not something that I'd really heard of or considered before. What about you? It also stood out to me. You know, I found myself thinking about a couple of our past interviews during our conversation with Brian. The first was Ed Barbier and how our economy is based on the idea that nature is in a perfect, predictable state, which is something we totally take for granted. As issues to climate change and biodiversity come to a head, this is not a safe assumption to make. But the economic argument might also be the strongest case we have to convince those people who don't necessarily take the environmental threats as seriously. The second interview I thought of was our conversation with Jeff Katch from Rodale and how he sort of thinks about biodiversity in a more holistic way rather than wildlife. It could be anything from the big predators to microscopic organisms in our soil. And so it's super important to maintaining healthy ecosystems on all aspects. Absolutely. And those are both such great points. So we have some resources in our show notes about Campaign for Nature, the 30% Pledge, and the upcoming convention in Montreal. Please check those out and find out ways to get involved to safeguard biodiversity. Yeah, this conversation really opened my eyes to the significance of biodiversity, and I highly encourage everybody to take action, donate, or get involved at your local level. Absolutely, Monica. We'll talk to you soon. Bye, Jennifer. Thanks so much for listening. 
And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement. 